Alright, uh, let's do this one more time. I'm Brooklyn's one and only Spider-Man. My name is Miles Morales. I was bitten by a radioactive spider. I'm pretty sure you know the rest. You're listening to the number one podcast in education across the Spider-Verse, Steambox. Are those my Jordans? Hey, this is Roberto. I am back today with the Steambox Versus podcast. We are being hosted by Young Voices in the Young Voices space. I've got Peter, Jennifer Wood, Elliot Rivera. We are all here. Please make some noise. Let our audience know you're here. There's so much to discuss. This conversation started with a sweet creations, Pilar. And we're going to talk to Pilar in the future, and I'm going to stitch that together. Part B to the conversation. But first... Our audience knows who Steambox is, and I'll, I'll give a brief introduction of that again in a, in a moment. But do you guys want to, why don't you share a little bit about uh, who you are representing today? Hey, y'all. Uh, my name is Elliot Rivera. I use the pronouns he, him, el, ellos. And I'm blessed to serve as the executive director at Youth in Action, um, where we co-create spaces for youth to share their stories, practice leadership, and create change in their communities. All right. Why is, uh, why is Youth in Action important to the community? Youth in Action creates the space for like, young people to like, really step into leadership in ways that are intergenerational. So like, we look at, we really have done a lot of work and we're still doing the work so that to understand that youth-led work doesn't have to just be the youth. It can be intergenerationally co-created, but through a youth-led lens. So at Youth in Action, the young people are leading and running with programming, which includes facilitating curriculum writing and evaluation. But they also now sit in all departments. So we have a development youth. We have a, a operation and restoration youth. We have a digital engagement youth. We have youth split 50-50 on the board, including a youth chair. So we model when we practice what we preach. And we support young people in stepping into whatever work they want to do without the community. Whether that's like being part of the youth action board at the statewide level and distributing like over 3 mil in resources for like ending youth homelessness. Or like being in collaboration with all the homies here at the table at our school's PBD and Providence and Life of Student Safety, like fighting for student equity and youth equity. Steambox is, uh, we just hit 10 years uh, of operation and we are 50% youth on the board. And guess where we learned that? Mm. We learned that from Youth in Action a million years ago. So yeah, Youth in Action has had a significant impact Mm. and influence on Steambox. Yeah, I say all the time, like I didn't have Youth in Action when I was a kid. But I'm glad I'm getting it now. Because it's like, that's really the gender generational. Because there's so much I've learned in the four and a half, oh my God, four and a half years, right? It's not wild. wild. Four and a half years that I've been here. So I'm finding my growth there, right? So yeah, it's big. I really love this work. All right. And remind me one more time. It, it was somewhere in Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. It was Worcester ish, but it wasn't Worcester. Oh, it was Worcester. It was okay. a 508. What town? What, what up? Yep, that's born and raised. Okay. First generation from El Salvador, my parents. Migrated here undocumented. I was born in Worcester. I was an oopsie baby, but I was a great oopsie baby. Maybe at some point in the future, you can uh, break down some of the significant differences <laughs> that's a, in that's the a culture of, of education and nonprofits between Worcester and Providence. That is a whole other dialogue. I'm down. Hey, Jennifer. Hey, how you doing? I'm so happy. To, I'm so happy to see you uh, offline. We were just saying that we rarely get to play together. And here we are. Thank you for coming in the door. Who are you representing today? So Jennifer Wood, I use she, her pronouns, and I'm here as the director of the Rhode Island Center for Justice. And we are a part of the Our Schools PVD Coalition, but I really was resonating with what Elliot was sharing about intergenerational work. 
because in that space, we are holding down that intergenerational piece because unlike the other, our school's PVD core partners, we are not a youth-led org. We're actually adult allies. Uh, we're a small nonprofit justice center, uh, and we represent grassroots community orgs in their struggles and campaigns using our legal toolbox. So we are adult allies. We bring a lot of young adults into the space because we work with so many student interns, law student interns, and really try and bridge that from the adult allies who are licensed attorneys doing the work and the representation, the young people who are with us learning about that justice work, and then repping the youth in their campaigns and struggles. So really kind of, I've learned so much over the last five years. So we kind of rotated in around the same time about how to work as an adult ally in a civil rights law firm working on youth-led campaigns. Before you walked in, I was telling Peter and Elliot that I start too many fires, and sometimes it's with the hand that feeds me. It's uh, oftentimes with POC Foundation, uh, Rhode Island Foundation, et cetera. And you are a really great inspiration because what I need to do is I need to put those things as tactfully as you do because I've been in the room with you when you've been a really fierce advocate for young people's needs. I need to I need to sprinkle a little bit of Jennifer Wood <laughs> on my fire. Uh, wood on the fire. Wood on the. Oh, okay. Extra kindling. You calling me kindling? <laughs> I, I mean, calcifer, right? Source of the heat. All right. The source of the heat. Peter Chung, what's up? What's happening? We're in your space. We've occupied uh, this is Occupy Young Voices movement today. Yeah, yeah. Welcome, welcome. So, uh, Peter Chung, I use the pronouns he him. Uh, executive director here at Young Voices, and pretty much uh, you're in our space today, and it resembles and, uh, yeah, pretty much resembles what we do here, right? Trying to meet young people where they're at and centering the voices of young people. Uh, we're trying to elevate young people to have a seat at the table uh, in all the decisions that impact them. And quick story, the space that we sit in now, and you've known us for a long time, we used to be remote, uh, this space was found by a student working on a project in our summer summer workforce program, um, and this is a you know the legacy that you know Ashanti and her class leave behind for the next generation of young voices leaders, right? So so for us, it's about just meeting young people where they're at um, and helping them put things into their toolbox, and then helping them uh, aspire for life outside of high school and what may, that may look like, whether that's directly into the workforce, uh, directly into college uh, or, or higher education, post-secondary success, whatever that may be. Uh, but we're trying to do that with a, um, you know, through the lens of equity. How do we uh, work with young people to uh, fully embrace their voice uh, in, you know, in, in the journey through high school, but also how do they impact systems uh, to fit uh, you know, their needs and their communities. And the, uh, the space that Ashanti found is in Providence. And we do a lot of our work in Providence. And I found that Providence has not been an easy community to do the kind of work that we're doing. And for, for me, I don't want to speak on your behalf, 
but I, I just find it interesting that you're right in the heart of Providence. It's almost like the grass is greener, right? Like in the communities uh, that can play together, but I'm from Providence. I want to serve Providence. I'm from Washington Park, uh, but they are the hardest community to serve sometimes. Yeah, you know, uh, while, we're, while we're based in Providence, we've, you know, worked in Pawtucket, Central Falls. Uh, we've had a history with Woonsocket and Newport. Uh, and so we felt like, you know, Providence is kind of like the hub for us. Uh, Kennedy Plaza or AKA KP is just two blocks from us. The transportation and, hub. And so that was really, that was really critical for us, right? Uh, when, we, when we were looking at hypothetically, if we could get a space, right? Uh, ideally, like our folks over at Youth in Action, where they actually have their own space, uh, we looked at the criteria of looking at location is really critical for us. It, accessibility for young people and whether that's through, uh, you know, their parents dropping them off or them catching, you know, Uncle Ripta or them walking from school. We, want, we wanted this place to be um, accessible for all students. So we found that, you know, even though downtown can be expensive in its way, uh, this has been the, you know, location was really critical for us. Uh, and that way we can serve students from a variety of communities, uh, but still be in Providence. Jennifer's org was distinct in that she talked about it's uh, an adult ally organization. But those moments where uh, this is a space that continues to grow for Young Voices. Young Voices is growing in the space. And Ashanti, like, contributed to that. Those are those big moments. Uh, and for our audience, I'm Roberto uh, from Steambox. Uh, many of you have probably heard my voice way too many times before. Uh, and thank you for following Steambox Versus. But we have a lot of those moments too. We, uh, Steambox is in Rhode Island. We are most famous for doing, sending things to space and making robots. I am so quick and happy to throw that stuff out the window and just do growth stuff with students, wellness stuff with students is a lot of where I've been pivoting, um, certainly over academics. So when it comes to Ashanti, we had a, a student recently, because students on this podcast were, they were talking about love and romance. So we started a mental wellness podcast already. All I had was toxic masculinity. You know what I mean? All I had was uncle saying, how many girlfriends do you have? And that kind of thing. So I thought it was important if they wanted to have those conversations that we bring in experts so that they can have those conversations, but we can share those conversations with the world. Uh, this student named it Mangukon Salami. This is their podcast, their effort, their initiative. And we reached out and we, we have like a uh, guest intro. So the guy who does Dragon Ball Z does our intro. This one, I have uh, an idea of who's going to do the intro for this podcast. Uh, if I can delay this podcast by a week. And so we had WWE champion, former WWE champion, Sasha Banks, and she's on uh, The Mandalorian. It's a show on Disney, a Star Wars show. She did the intro, and here's this person that he recognizes, he knows, WWE champion, he loves wrestling. And he's like, yo, she just said the name that I came up. Like last week, I came up with this name, and she said, the I love those moments when Ashanti gets to see growth, right? And, and real world impact and stuff like that. Yeah, we want them to go to college and stuff, but um, that's a lot of the fun stuff that Steambox is having. Those are the moments that I like more than the academic moments, just to be completely honest. And we had a lot of our growth and this podcast really took off because we were able to pivot during the pandemic. I can definitely talk more about the pandemic, but it really made me stop and think about how can I grow? If I'm with students all the time and I'm getting students into this space all the time, 
and now we can't even leave the house, how can I still offer programming? How can I offer support for students who are like scratching on the walls and stuff like that? So we found some really cool, we did a, we did a hackathon online. We did the, the podcast really blew up during the pandemic. How did Rhode Island Community for Justice, how did they pivot? How did, how did COVID impact you guys? Everything changed as it did for everyone, right? And what we saw was an explosion of intense need in our community. Um, we saw young people really struggling with being isolated and locked down. Literally, we talk about lockdown. You know, that's a pretty, uh, that's a penological term, right? That's like the carceral state, like everyone's locked in. And um, what we had to do is what everyone had to do, which was to really use 21st century tools to connect with our community. And, and fortunately, through just some kind of lucky accidents, we had already gone um, cloud-based with our practice months before the pandemic, taking ourselves off of legacy phone systems, taking ourselves um, onto the web with our interface to our clients. And so we just were able to kind of shift over and be available to the community, be available to, available to the youth like everyone else with through Zoom, through other electronic means. And, you know, I think that people who want to find common cause and work together, find a way. Mm-hmm. And that's what we learned. Our school's PVD rolled right through the pandemic, connecting youth were there making decisions. Adult allies were there trying to support that. It wasn't pretty. It was like constantly experimenting and reinventing, but here we are. And I think we actually got stronger and really were forced to re-examine how we were putting youth at the center because of the ways that we were isolated. Yeah. Some people stepped away and, you know, waited it out. And then some people uh, pressed on. I'm unfamiliar with Youth in Action's um, action during COVID. Um, and that's because I'm in my own little bubble. That's not because, so please enlighten me. Uh, how did you guys deal with it? Oh, so to frame out what I'm going to say, I'm looking at this poster behind you, right? And it's talking about how can we tell our rental help isn't at the best. And like so much of that is resonating with me at the moment. And, and it's just the reality of like this work is so consuming. And it's so consuming when you are a person who is reflective of the communities you're serving and trying to understand and establish the boundaries that are important for the work that's be happening and the what needs to happen. And COVID just blew that up, right? So when COVID happened, all of a sudden it was just like, so like Youth in Action, like our young people are, are in the spaces where they're like getting real with each other. And like, that's the fundamental piece to then stepping into like, what does your leadership look like and how do you want that to live in your life, in your communities, and then build projects around that, right? Youth were not trying to do that in their kitchen. Youth were not trying to do that in their bedroom, which they share with other people. And our youth are like exploring all parts of themselves. They're sharing and hearing all parts, it wasn't the same. Then at the same time, our, our staffing and our, our team, our, our higher team, are reflective of the communities. So like we're facing the same things. Like we're seeing our people dying. We're seeing our people getting sick. We're being isolated, you know? And so we're, so it was this really, really hard intersection of how do we survive? 
from a physical and mental place, but then being feel this extreme necessity as we're trying to figure out how to survive as individuals and families to then serve our young people. And what led to us successfully getting through that is just, we had to pump the brakes and really be like, all right, what got us through like a, a big transition in the past? What got us through like hard times in the past? Really just going to the young people and be like, what, what, what do we do? Yeah. We're trying all kinds of things. At one point, I remember uh, the Youth in Action team and then the Rhode Island Urban Debate League, because they're also housed at our house, were like, these youth, we need to make sure they're fed. We're about to make like pots of pasta every day. We had this whole thing. I was like, well, hold on. Let's just talk to our young people. Yeah. And like, let's just like, let's not forget how we function. And then that's when they're like, no, this is how we're going to reach each other. So then uh, like a, a lot of our program models turn into like games, like kibbutz. And like all of a sudden we we're doing all these things like lunch and then we'll just get on the Zoom and let's just eat together and talk. So like, it's just like, what does it look like to still create intentional space where we can all exist together and get through that? And then through there is when we started hearing things that transformed the work that was already happening. So we've been working on, one example is we're working on um, ending domestic violence for the better part of a decade now. And that work went for a pause for a while. Then all of a sudden it was like, yo, from hearing stories and like that they're being shared on the Zooms, but also from like their peers is people are now stuck with like they're victimized, like the the, 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 the perpetrators yeah. in their homes. Yeah. People are having needs and they don't have those spaces. So then that work involved, evolved even further. We got closer with the coalition and domestic violence. And, and that kept evolving to the place where now we have the youth version of um, the coalition's 10-minute program. We have 10 young men. We just finished its first year. Uh, oh, very cool. Yeah, and it's like really dope. We just had an intergenerational dialogue last week. Yeah. And then like and, and then the ending youth homelessness is another example, right? Where it's just like a lot of youth were like, yo, my friends are like couch surfing. <laughs> they, they have nowhere to go. And it's like, well, this is a big problem. And then I remember youth doing interviews and sitting down with policymakers and being like, well, there are places for families to go. And it's just like, no, not families, youth. There are no youth shelters. They start discovering things that I didn't even know. Like if you are a male identified youth in your teens, you present as an older male, you can't go to the shelter with women and families. You're being placed with adult men. Yeah. And there's like a disproportionate amount of, uh, of offenders in those spaces. We're literally putting young people in these spaces. And like, they were like, where was the dialogues about that? Who's making these decisions? And that pushed the work that became the Youth Action Board and how that lives today. Outdoor equity is a big piece for us at Youth in Action, and it has been for a long time. And, it's all, and it started with when we bring our young people camping or hiking or whatever it is we do outside. Why are there more people that look like me? And outdoor equity started as getting more brown and black people outside and then turning into like, well, how do green and blue spaces affect black and yeah. lives? And our young people that just kept going because the only place we congregate was outside in like those little circles of Roger Williams parks with masks in six feet apart. And then all of a sudden, like, let's get more people outside. Let's do this. And now we're doing that program with Joanna Uso. Oh, yeah. And it was like, we're like, fam. Oh, I'm an ass for not being able to do that. There was something that came up and I couldn't I couldn't do that. I didn't really have the youth for it either mm. at the time because because I was disconnected because of COVID. Mm -hmm. We were all digital still. Yeah. Um, but man, I'm. Was that a really good experience? Well, which one? Because Joe be doing a lot. Yeah, we were participating a lot. Well, it sounds, like, it sounds like you guys grew from that, and mm -hmm. and we're doing a lot of outdoor experiences. Yeah, because like one of the things that shout came out to Joanna Uso. Oh, yeah, Joanna Uso at Women Education Outdoors. Look it up. Please donate today to the homie. They, they are critical to Rhode Island and uh, today and tomorrow. So please donate. Give them grants. And Joe hosted a retreat yep. for the our school PVDU. Yep. Which was super powerful yep. and amazing. Hell yeah. 
Because, like, through Joe's leadership, we're going to just talk about Moon Education. Yeah. <laughs> through Joe's leadership, our young people were able to be equity consultants on, on a, uh urban forest canopy project. Yeah. Because it was just like, yo, we're like, get outside. We don't have trees in our neighborhood. <laughs> like, this is a problem. Like, why is this happening? So Jennifer talked about, Jennifer talked about the, during COVID, mm -hmm. getting into a lot of innovation and how they were already planting the seeds for that pre-COVID to have the infrastructure mm -hmm. to be able to move into cloud-based uh, continuance of programs. You're talking about your youth leading with real world problems. And what's funny is it's, it, I saw the Steambox model in there. You talked about like some of the solutions that you're going to pose to the students and the students are like, well, what about all this? Yep. Every year I come up with a whole curriculum of what we're going to do this year. And then the students are like, yeah, that's cool, but we want to do this. Pretty <laughs> much. Yeah, right? Pretty much. Yeah. We're going back to Japan. Yep. Right? Like that. Yeah. But it's, uh, it's I'm like, man, that's a lot of money. Man. I'm gonna do that. <laughs> yep. I think for me, one of the biggest impacts and, and I talked already about like the podcast that sprung from it, from mental wellness, but, but to, I could nutshell this where it was not, it was not about academics anymore, and it never will be again. That's it. We lead with STEAM. We lead with science, technology, engineering, arts, and math. That's our lens, you know, uh, by which we do programs. But all I care about for as a dad for my son, mm -hmm. and the same thing for the youth that walk through the door of Steambox, it's I want to make sure they're okay. I want to make sure I, I learned through these podcasts that some of the students were having a hard time ex accepting that they wanted to see tomorrow. And a lot of them were locked in with people who were affecting their mental wellness That's it. and uh, negatively impacting them. So forevermore, Steambox is moving in this direction where, yes, we're through the lens of Steam, but we are we want to make sure that you are well, happy, uh, and and motivated is is where we're going. That's that's how we move. What did Young Voices? Uh, how did COVID affect Young Voices? So uh, for us, it certainly affected us. Just like everyone else uh you know I, I think two things first i want to first shout out to the youth that carried us through mm -hmm. um a lot of trial and errors a lot of uh you know hiccups and barriers and so forth but you know I, it just goes back to like the importance of like transformative relationships with young people right and so for us we you know in, in some ways from an organization standpoint i i will say we thrived in the pandemic and and that's you know not to downplay that the pandemic had important but like as just an organization as, as an institution um but you know i think though the first thing that for me in terms of leadership one of the things is i stepped into ed in the heart of pandemic uh and so there was so many moving pieces and 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 you know trying to adapt trying to adjust and so my my mentor was just like control what I can, accept what I can't, uh, and that kind of just led into like, all right, we're gonna meet the young people where they at. If they're gonna show up for Zoom and they'll be like, in thirty minutes and they're like, yo, I'm out, I'm out. Like, so we we're gonna meet you where you at. Like, I'm not gonna try to squeeze anything out from you. Can I say that I am very happy for you and I'm very happy for your organization. I knew uh, and had a high respect for the previous ED. So this is no disrespect, but the, this organization is really looking really strong and it's led really strong. Uh, there's a lot of heart in it now that not compared to the former ED, but compared to almost any organization around, there's a lot of heart in Young Voices. Uh, so I just want to say you, you talked briefly about how you took leadership during that time. 
but it's been a really, really positive change watching it from the outside. I don't. What do you What do you think? Oh, a hundred percent. Have you seen all this energy? Yeah. Like we we came over to meet with the youth to have a discussion, and my younger colleagues when we left were just jumping up and down, totally jazzed about conversations with the young people. Just you know, it's been so exciting to just make space for young people to lead. And Young Voices and Youth in Action have been doing that all along, but it really helps us to understand how we fit into that support role just to see that and watch that happening. So I didn't want to let you glaze over the idea. And I'm, I took leadership. Uh, it's actually meant a lot for the community. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. And, you know, I think, like, you know, our success is a collective success, right? And, mm-hmm. I, and it goes from, like, our young people to our staff to leadership uh, to our community partners, uh, you know, to, to our broader uh, you know, partners from the business community, from foundations and so forth. Um, you know, it, it, it certainly takes a lot of effort. But I think for us, again, uh, you know, adapting to just the way the pandemic shifted, right? Like going back to you, your point about academics and so forth, I think the pandemic reset for us. And to me, it was like an unpopular opinion, but grades is a social construct, right? right? Like, uh, and everyone pivoted to take care because at the end of the day, we're taking care of human lives, right? Like it's different individuals' lives that we're dealing with. And so, um, you know, so for us, like we looked at what we said, um, you know, I think from, from, a, from an operational standpoint, you know, my, my philosophy was like, look, our board passed our budget. So whatever commitments we have to our young people, we're going to keep that till the end of the year. We don't need to change that. It's already been accounted for and forecasted, projected, some confirmed, some not, but let's, you know, let's not shuffle that. That's one less stress to worry about. Let's just worry about working, meeting with the, with our young people and meeting their needs. So right off the bat, I mean, you know, learning Zoom and all of those tools, you learn a lot from young people. We consolidated, condensed most of our programming, but it also gave us opportunity. Now all our kids from Pawtucket, Central Falls, Providence, which we dreamt about hosting together in mm. one space. Now we're all in the same spaces uh, and we're able to share. And then, you know, as we went along, it was just like, what was really important? We, you know, when we talked about Zoom programming, you know, everyone got caught up in like, in, yeah, guilty as charged, like getting caught up in like, oh, if, will you be on camera? Will you be on sound? And then after a while you realize like, young people are engaging. It's just, how do you want to accept them to engage? And that was like the aha moment for us. If they're engaging on the chat, by all means, turn your camera off, turn your sound off. Mm-hmm. You'll be good, right? But I've got, we've got you. We, we have interaction, right? Or you'll send us an email. Or, or young people beca- became adaptive and, and, and they started to really be expressive in so many ways. And I think the key piece here was like, how do we as adult allies respond to young people. One of the things that I think is really important, as we pull a group like this together, we pull this group together, um, some of us see each other more than others, but we all work in very distinct different areas. There was definitely a lot of overlap, but we work in distinct separate areas. But I was interested in seeing the things where we have in common. So what's this one voice coming out of this? And also the areas where we disagree and, and you know need to still find solutions. But what I just heard was one voice saying from all of us saying that the the academics is not the most important thing for our students. I spoke on it as a dad 
And we were speaking on it as, you know, uh, youth organizers, but we're talking about, we're talking about justice. We're talking about wellness. We're talking about ending homelessness to some degree, obviously in small chunks at a time. These are the things that are really important. These are the priorities. I just think, I just want to make note of that. I don't want to tell the audience what to do with that, but I want to make note that that's been one consistent message. I want to stick with you for a second because you are who I think about when I struggle with the following equation. Here's the equation, Jennifer. The equation is mission-driven versus chasing funds. Mm. I've seen organizations, OWL, who used to be known as the College Crusade, can you believe they changed their whole name just so that they can have like an OWL mascot? Like onward, we learned. They used to be the College Crusade, right? My time working there, great influence on me. Uh, that's where I worked with Mary Harrison, and they did a lot for my career and for a lot of the young people who I now, you know, are, are my peers. What I mean to say is when they had these big grants, they would change the whole organization to fit what the grants need you to do. So whatever, wherever the money's coming from, well, that's what our new priority is. We all just talked about our priorities, our student wellness and what their missions are. They would, their mission would drift based on where the money is. And I've seen this from other orgs too. And I've also seen some of our funders and I know they're our funders because I've seen this with all of these orgs that there's some people that we have in common. I've seen some of our funders say, here's some money. Here's what I'd like for you to do. Some of them are really nice and step off and say, hey, you deserve this. You guys have earned this. And some of, uh, some of them say, hey, can you give us a shout out here and here and here and uh, those kind of things. But there are sometimes, and let me make one more example. And before I loop it back to you, and I know I'm going long-winded on this and I apologize. Um, a day like 401 gives, I really hate 401 gives. I hate the F out of 401 gives. Because on the surface, it seems like a charitable, nice day for small organizations. And that's what they, and that's what they say. And conversations that I've had inside with United Way is, what do you think a small organization is? And the answers that I've heard is $500,000 or less organizations. Well, Nico and I and a few other people are trying to point out, do you know like more than 70-something percent of organizations are like under 100 in, in Rhode Island alone? So you're not serving, you're serving pretty much everybody except for a few people, and even they are eligible for 401 gifts. My point is, to succeed on 401 Gives Day, you're going to need a team, you're going to need people dedicated to this stuff, you're going to have to spend probably the year strategizing, not your full year. This is not all Elliot with, from Youth in Action would do, but if you really want to succeed at 401 Gives, you're going to have to have a year-long strategy with a team able to do this stuff. Now, Nico... Pilar, Steambox, we don't have assets like Akeem. that. Akeem, Akeem. Uh, a leadership turn, who's just coming back from South Africa for the fourth time, I think. These are great examples. We don't have resources for this stuff. So the, pe the very people they're saying they want to serve are the first people who get left out. It's always foster forward. It's always the owl. You know what I mean? The one exception being Peter. <laughs> and young voices. So you are walking that line, and I want to talk about that because I think it's really important. I, I think we need to figure out, I want to decolonize funding, right? Funding formulas and funders and all that stuff. But, but what is that line? How does that work for you? What do you feel about mission drifting? Do you feel like you have to mission drift? Uh, so, so I will say, you know, this is where I 
really would put a lot to where I learned from my predecessor, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I think what uh, they were able to do was they were able to look at our annual budget and say, hey, look, we have to diversify this funding. We need to be able to bring in enough grant dollars. We need to bring in enough business money, enough fundraising dollars, individual donors. And so as an ED, I've never done that. I've never said, I need to diversify Steambox's funds. So, so, so that's to me, like, I think there was a lot of lessons learned in there. And so for the 401 gives pot for me, like having done a lot of fundraising uh, before being the ED and like really trying to work up, I found it as an easy way for us to get most of our money. But the, the, the main push for me is like all of us, when we talk about funding and, and dollars, I love unrestricted money. And that's why I put a lot of eggs into 401 gives because it gives me unrestricted funds where I don't have to, right? Like I don't have to report to a funder, oh, we took this amount of money and we spent it on this. And so that's the icing on the other side where it's just like, yeah, I don't really like doing this piece, but it gives me, you know, for one weekend in a year, I can spend, you know, $60,000. Like say, for example, we don't get something and I'm like, all right, I'm just going to take this money and allocate it there. That's the easy piece of, right? Like unrestricted money. I want to say, you know, we are guilty in Mission Drift, uh, you know, historically as well. I, I want to own that. Like I don't want to, you know, sugarcoat it that like we didn't do that. But I think where it's helped me a lot and it says for me is I came into this organization in the entry position as a program coordinator and all the way was been very fortunate to grow to becoming BD. And along the way, you get, you know, when funding comes in, at the end of the day, it goes back down to program, right? And so when we talk about capacity, we talk about, you know, does it fit the mission? Does it fit growth? To me, that's what really has helped informed me in terms of like how I make grant decisions. So if you're going to come to me about grant dollars for programming, my first instinct is to say, okay, bring, take your grant and give it to my program team and for them to say, hey, look, this, this, you know, these dollars, um, no, it's putting more work on my plate. It's not helping me grow professionally. I don't feel the vibe with the work. So if all of those check marks come back to me and I'm like, well, that's just an indication that capacity is key. I'm not going to apply for it. Yeah. On the other side of that means I got a hole. Right. And so, but my, my, my piece with my team is just like, you worry about the young people. I worry about you, right? Like we prioritize in that way and we're going to make it work. Um, I mean, I'm halfway through my year right now. It still looks scary, but. You know, I think it's collective. It's collective. You say that every day. You're so full of shit. It's You're so full of shit. It's collective work. It's like, like, no, no, but I'm saying like, even with like, even with OSPVD, like, you know, uh, you just build bits and pieces for it together. But I think going back to the original point, diversified funding and unrestricted funding, that's where, that's where you have to go to. When I look at people who are successful during 401 gives, uh, and I know the questions about mission drifting, and I'm uh, uh -huh. going to pass it to you in a second. Uh, when I think about 401 gives and people who are successful, I, I'm usually suspicious. I'm usually suspicious of the larger organizations coming in and taking from a pot that should, in spirit, be going to the smaller organization. When I look at your organization, I, I do that like uh, when Seinfeld would curse out Newman then. That, <laughs> right? Because 
because what I see from what I see from young voices is I see an energy. I, I not the strategies that you talked about. Something that I didn't hear you mention as much was this team that you have here who completely believe in your mission and they are foot soldiers on that day. And I'm talking not only about the youth, because Elliot and I talked a lot about how the youth are invested in the work that we're doing, but you have a very young staff who is freaking amazing. And I don't say that lightly, right? I don't say that about other organizations, so many other organizations, your staff is dope. You have picked them well, excuse me, you actually picked the Steambox student, which was uh, foul play, but, uh, <laughs> but your staff is uh, amazing. And I think that they're also doing a large share of that work on, on a day like 401. I, mean, I, I will say shout out also to our folks at Arise. Like if you yes. seven, eight, nine this year, hey, uh, listen, Arise, Young Voices Arise CFJ. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We took that and we're coming. We're yeah. coming, we're coming, <laughs> we're, we're coming, right? But if you want to see a grassroots like fundraising, Look at Arise, like 600 plus people. Amazing. Shonda's killing. Shonda's, Shonda's my hero. And Shonda, Shonda has this ability that I mentioned that Jennifer has where like I'll start a fire and then I'll end up in handcuffs. Shonda will <laughs> do way worse and like cuss people and the mother out. And then they're like, here's a check. Please just stop yelling at us. Uh, <laughs> And Shonda's, Shonda's definitely a fire starter mm. and a badass and one of my heroes. Mm. How's uh, Youth in Action? How, have, you had to deal with, have you had to deal with funders? I gave money back to United Way. United Way gave us 25000 one time. It, it was not in the fine print, but it turns out that we had to go to United Way and do things, learn how to engage young people and stuff like that. I was like, I'm sorry, are you here for me to teach you how to engage young? Oh, you want to teach me how to engage young people? Like, what? No, keep your money, dude. Like I'm not, I'm not spending my year doing this. Have you ever had to deal with compromising situations for funding and, and things that would make you mission drift with youth in action? Every day, there's always an opportunity, right? And it's like, and it's, I think the biggest thing is moving past this idea of the scarcity mindset of like, there's only so many dollars, and we all have to fight for it and like consume each other, and you know. One of the things that I keep thinking about, like the commonality of the themes that are coming up here, the theme, the biggest theme for me, when I think about Providence, Rhode Island, and the, and like the, the youth serving organizations, for me, it's a sense of belonging where it's, you know, like, like we started at the beginning of the podcast naming is like, I'm not from Providence. I have connections with Providence. I've done work in Providence, but I'm not from here. I'm from Worcester. And I remember being told by so many people in Worcester, Yo, Providence is such a hard place to build community. Are you sure you want to go there? And I was just like, yeah, I don't know what your experience is, but we got to see. One of the first people I saw, because I knew them already when I got here, was Peter. And Peter took me out to go eat Jamaica food. And we went to Flames. It was delicious. And like, and I just felt like I got a sense of belonging. Then there were other people with a sense of belonging. And like, my, I think it was within my first six months, I'm sitting right next to Jen and like facing off with the commissioner and all, and all, all of her homies. And it's just like, I felt like I belonged. And I was like, whoa, this is wild. And what that did for me is it transformed what the nonprofit industrial complex had already embedded in me, which is you got to make the money. You got to follow that sense. There's a scarcity. Don't look at them because they're trying to get the same dollars as you. That shit broke down for me. I don't know if I can swear, but I just did. (laughs) It broke down for me very quickly when I got here. And then that, and I remember. What's funny is it's, it's not the community that's hard to build. 
it's the red tape that's around the community that's hard to get through. You know what I mean? It's the bureaucracy and bullshit around the community. Yeah, and it's and it's and I think that's just the the, the community is a transformative piece because I think back to the pandemic. I want to say it was May twenty twenty. There was a moment where we had as youth in action less than a month operating budget in our bank and it was like not looking good and of course like at that point it's just like okay we can like what can we reach out for what can we do that sounds like a cool project sure we could do that and we didn't end up having to do that and it was a lot of like leveraging and i had i had other homies i could talk to i could think about what what the what, what to do and then we were able to get a grant which kind of helped us like stabilize and then go and then since then and then at the same time that's when that transformative piece that we knew existed, but we but we remember, oh yeah, we can lean into this of like letting the youth just lead and then go from there is what got us to where we are now. And even even like it's that's it's been a little over three years since the pandemic, a little over three years, three and a half since the pandemic started. For most of that time, and in the in the years before I came on, Youth in Action has been a team of three full time staff. And in July first, we hit a year of having six full time staff. And with the new approved budget that the board has approved, we're going to have seven full-time staff and 12 youth part-time staff. And like youth were even part of the payroll on when I had started. Like all of our youth get stipended for their work, but now we have young people like needing everything, like in real staple standard operating procedure, like policy ways, like you are part of this structure. And what that has done is like, how can United Way, how can Rhode Island Foundation, how can Papito, how can whoever come and tell us this is how you got to do your work? Right. <laughs> no, this is how we do the work. How do I know? Because Peter has confirmed that and Jen has confirmed that and Roberto has confirmed that and Shonda's been yelling at you about it now. And it's just like, because this is like, we have like created this wall of love around each other where it's just like, we ain't got fuck with us. We know what's right. There is no scarcity. Open your wallet. What was so important to me, what the, the part that hit me the most mm -hmm. was when you stepped back it's a it's an emergency time for youth mm -hmm. in action and you stepped back and you let the students move forward mm -hmm. and you said they're gonna lead us into tomorrow mm -hmm. like that's that's the thing like that is the point um and i honestly believe that's how we exist that's how steambox survives and doesn't worry about next year and stuff like that and that's what i've seen from our mutual organizations jennifer um so with like with the name justice in the mm -hmm. title if we're talking about mission drifting, that would be a huge, uh, that would be a huge irony, right? So it must be important that there's no mission drifting with, uh, with your organization. How have you guys approached this? So I'm finding this to be a very powerful conversation because I didn't even realize the commonality on this issue that we share. Because first of all, as a nonprofit director, Anyone who says they're not on the hustle is not being truthful. Mm. Like that is just my daily. <laughs> and my staff laughs at me because I'm like, I'm on the hustle, boys and girls, let's go. That is just real. But there's a difference between be, what, being on mission and hustling for your mission right. and being chasing the dollars no matter where you're running. Mm. And so I think that fundamental truth is structural and what i just heard because when i joined the center for justice there's a design built into the structure which is that we will not do work unless there is a grassroots community partner calling for that work 
that's what insulates me from just chasing rainbows, right? I got to be asking myself, and this happens constantly. There's a grant opportunity. There's, there's a donor. There's something coming up. And the question I have to ask myself, I look at our structural reason to exist, which is partner with grassroots community orgs to fill unmet legal needs in the community. So unless someone, unless Elliot is saying to me, well, we need help over at Youth in Action with this piece, and unless our school's PBD is saying, hey, there's a state takeover of this largest public school district in our state, and that is very concerning. Mm-hmm. And we need some of what you all do to help us navigate that and make our own conclusions about how we want to push decision makers in that space then without that demand from the community, then no thank you. Oh. Like that's, and what I heard was for, you know, whether it's that the youth, you'd have to step back and yet let the youth lead, then you're not on mission drift. Then you're doing what you're supposed to do. It doesn't mean you're doing the same thing this year that you were doing last year. You might be doing something entire, and we do, like we, we're doing entirely different things mm-hmm. in some aspects of our work because a community partner came to us. We're doing driver's license restoration right now because people who have had the experience of being, of having their poverty criminalized because they couldn't pay a- Can you say that again? Having their poverty criminalized and being deprived of the right to legally be on the roadway for 20 years over a couple of tickets because they were driving while black, got pulled over, couldn't pay the ticket, then you're driving with a suspended license, then you're driving without valid registration, and now it's 20 years later, and you've been unable to have that privilege and power that is getting behind that automobile wheel with a license. These are the things that some of the most well-intended people who are benefactors of white supremacy don't often realize is that poverty in itself is often criminalized and penalized. The idea of uh, if you were born with money, you're not on the same equal footing as somebody who wasn't right poor. This, yeah, uh, pull, you, pull yourself up by the bootstraps. Well, being poor costs you money, right? Like the bank will charge you money for not having enough money, which is a wild thing. Thank you, Jennifer, for saying that. You touched on two other things, and I want to be really respectful to everybody's time. I know we all have so many other places to be, but uh, since you brought up something else, I'm just going to, there's two other avenues. Maybe we could do quick hits on that. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm of the belief, I'm of the belief that Angelica, uh, the commissioner of education in Rhode Island, uh, was here for a thing that I saw that she was here for that could never be said out loud because it would rabble rouse a group that's very powerful and has their own union. And I'm of the belief that if COVID hadn't hit, Rhode Island would have tried an emergency scenario to try to rectify things in a similar way that happened in Central Falls. To be very specific, I'm thinking that part of the takeover would have involved uh, getting rid of teacher contracts um, in an effort to move forward. Now, some of the teachers who I adore in Central Falls, David Obegi, I think is the best teacher in the world. He's, he, to me, is Jaime Escalante uh, of Stand and Deliver fame. Uh, and I mean, I mean it, I mean, like he's very similar. Um, he talked about the trauma that happened to teachers during that time in Central Falls. And I'm like, yeah, cool. I, and please forgive me, because I know we all have 
we all have a, a lot of ideas about this, but I deal with the students who are facing that trauma every day from teachers who call them the N-word, right? Like it's a real thing and it happens in the schools and I've personally seen it from different people. How many times should I have ever, I should never have had to see it, but if one crazy person, maybe, but if I've seen it from like three people now dropping the N-bomb to students, like this is a problem. So I see teachers, uh, I see students who are traumatized. I of course don't want teachers to be traumatized in the process, but I wonder if that was a necessary evil. So I wanna go back because you had mentioned um, the, the state takeover. What is, what does what RIC4J, uh, what's their thoughts on that? Is that a, I'm sorry, I should also throw in the one last piece. She was unable to do that. COVID hit, we switched governors. The new governor uh, was very pro-union. It was just never going to happen. And now I feel like we have a, 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 a lame duck kind of commissioner. So whatever our opinion is, I, it was just my opinion that she was here for a thing that she can't do. Um, so would that have even been, is that leading towards justice? Because what I'm considering justice is an injustice for so many other people. I'm sorry, I'm going to. No, so where we entered, actually, where this beautiful coalition of youth-led orgs and adult allies came together was around the state takeover. And you are so correct that there are so many twists and turns in this narrative. And when this history gets written, it's going to be powerful. Mm. Um, but we grounded that coalition in the work of Professor Domingo Morel, who wrote the book, literally, yep. Take Over. And, you know, the first thing when this whole thing started fomenting, I went and read that book. Mm -hmm. And I was like, okay. What 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 can we learn from Central Falls? Because you know Central Falls is a major case study in his in his scholarship in that book, and so we came together with the community and said, okay, there's this legal thing called a state takeover. I happen to know that statute because I was involved in that statute being developed in the first place as an intervention in schools. But what do you as community members? What is your position on this? Forget what's legally possible, what's legally appropriate. None of that really mattered. Yep. What mattered was how do, how were youth feeling about their schools, that they are in every day, mm -hmm. where things unjust, illegal, inappropriate are happening to them every day. What about the families? What about the teachers? What about everyone who's trapped in those systems? And we ended up in this huge catch-22, which was that Everybody knew that the state takeover was a lot of different layers with a lot of different systemic issues going on yeah. and many different agendas. Not one yeah. agenda. Many I, I agree. Agendas. I agree. Some just, Everybody, some unjust. Right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And could we have fought it? Could we even maybe have shut it down? Possibly. But the community said, so then what are we, apologists for the Providence Public Schools as they're operating over the last 50 years? No, thank you. So as a lawyer, I was very conflicted, honestly, because I was like, I can think of some strategy and tactics here and really get some stuff going on. And listening to the youth and to the parent organizations, the feedback was, no, we are not going to block this because we want to be part of it and demand better schools for ourselves and for our families. Because otherwise we're saying it's okay. We're saying the status quo is okay, and the status quo is emphatically not okay. It was one of the most confusing years of my life as 
for what I do in my job because I was like, well, there's all this whole other route we could take, but the community was saying no. And, and you know what, it, regardless of the players and the participants, it was about the systems. The system is acting exactly as designed. That's the fallacy. The fallacy is, oh, the system was broken. We got to fix it with a takeover and turnaround. It is acting exactly as designed. And until that, des that white supremacist design is torn out at the root, we're not going to see the changes that the folks we're working with every day in community with want to see. Thoughts? It it was it's a, always a fight for representation, right? Because right? it's one of those things where it's like, you know, I don't know how I ended up there, but but I'm on the masters right now for uh, policy planning and hey. and all this stuff, and it's just like, and we talk a lot about like how when policy is written, one of the politicians' favorite words is may. This may happen, mm -hmm. or this. Well, no, no, no. Tell me it's going to happen and tell me when. And listening to Eero now, Jen is, I just got back in my body in 2019. And I remember those conversations where we're like, no, 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 we take over, but we want, we want to see the student representation and leadership will happen this way. We want to see parent and, and community leadership representation is going to happen this way. And it's always this thing of like, we, and I go back, I don't know if I said, I can't remember if I said this in the podcast or our conversation earlier, which is like, the antithesis of, of white supremacy is uh, interracial appropriation. Yeah. And it's in the same thing. And then you have to add it intergenerational when it comes to like youth-led work and what's happening in our schools. So we were always demanding that from the beginning. It's just like, you, no, no, the whole system needs to be like destroyed. <laughs> Let's talk about that. Yeah. And as we're rebuilding it, because that's what we're saying here, right? Like this John Hopkins report came out and literally is saying, oh, our teachers are racist. Yeah. I don't know they are. For our audience, yeah. uh, the John Hopkins report, Providence, Google it, 2019, 2019, 2019. Yeah. yeah. And it's like 10 years worth of reporting <laughs> that your grassroots organization did. Yeah. And community, 20 years. Yeah. I've been telling you. Yeah. And all of a sudden, just because we don't have the validation stamp mark on it, all of a sudden it's that, ooh. Yup, exactly. And I, re I, knew. I remember it was summer of 2019 before the whole like thing. Yeah, it was we were, summer. We were at Roger Williams and we had our young people, we had alumni, we had all the orgs. And we had all these sticky notes like, this is what young people have been saying for 20 years. And it's like, oh, it's this what your report says now? That's cute. So like, so or, and we were trying to uplift of like, this is why they need to be represented in the leadership because they've been naming the problem and solutions for decades. Right. And we're not going to solve the problem unless it. I mean, so, you know, I, I'm now a parent of a Providence Public School. My mm -hmm. kid go, went to the school in the pandemic. So, you know, kindergarten, uh, finishing up second grade now. So... Uh, I am part of that system. But I think like when we talk about the takeover, you know, the, the one thing that I will say is just like, for me, the saddest part is how the community got stripped of power. Mm. And I'll give you a good example right now is uh, it all has to do with, with the pandemic. What came with the pandemic was money. That's the dollars, right? Uh, elementary, secondary school, emergency relief fund. $600 million came to Rhode Island. And simply put, Department of Education was able to take 60 million of that, that's like 10%, and then 540 million got spread out to all the lead education agencies. And the parameters around how you could use that money was very loosely, like 20% was must be uh, used for learning loss happening, you know, that caused by the pandemic. And then 80% of it you could use for any, like majority educational needs, right? Really? Providence received 182 million in asset two and three dogs, right? 
And so where I say is this, can I tell you Steambox got less money during that time from Providence Public Schools? <laughs> less money. Complete. So, you know, there are orgs out there that still haven't gotten their money from PPSD from four or five years ago. Yeah. So, 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 so continue, Peter. Sorry. <laughs> when we talk about stripped by, stripped by the community, right, is the community does not know where to go to advocate or, or push or fight to say, hey, this is where we want these dollars, right? And there was, you know, when these dollars first came in, there was, I think, seven of us, uh, seven groups came together. We, there was nobody giving us like tons of money to do this. We got like some funding from Nelly and we broke down the data fact sheet for the Department of Education. Like they, we did the work for them, like million, millions of dollars. We did the work for them, right? Yeah. And so my, my whole thing, my, my, my point here is we've missed the opportunity for us to advocate for needs that we could do for even our own individual schools, yeah. right? And, and the most recent thing is like just recently last week, there was, there was uh, something that came out on how Providence is investing some of their uh, upper dollars, right, or ESSA dollars into extending the school day for elementary, middle, and high school. Well, none of us knew how to push and say, well, that's not what we want. Or if that's the way that you're going to be investing in it, we want you for elementary school, maybe potentially increase, you know, let me tell you guys. Recess. Let me tell you guys the right. stupidest reason. Right. The stupidest reason why I'm not involved in those conversations. And, and this is going to make me sound really dumb. I got two things that are going to make me sound really dumb. Uh, I want to hear your thoughts and we'll wrap it up. Uh, the reason I, the Steambox is not in those conversations, and sometimes I wonder if I'm the best thing for the organization, right? Um, the students believe we're, we're moving forward, we're having great years uh, and, and living. But to be honest, I do want to be in Providence. Providence is my home. I've never done less work in Providence than over these past, over the, the past year, over the past year. And this year, something that got sent out this tool, uh, which is very common practice, is what do they call it? Uh, RFQ? Requ request for qualification. Oh, so, so pages, it's, that's it's, it. it's, it's, <laughs> I understand that it's common, it's common language, request for qualifications, but I'm a very literal person. And after not only the, not only the John Hopkins report, but after everything I've seen in Providence schools, and after I've dealt with JL from PPSD and so many other people from PPSD who, I mean, these people might individually be fine, but the entire system, while you're saying it's effective for what it's trying to do, the people in it who are trying to maneuver, it's incompetence. It's level after level after level of incompetence. And when I see somebody say, Roberto, fill out this request for like my qualifications. What are my qualifications to work with PPSD? Motherfucker, what are your qualifications? What, are you kidding me? I, I don't know if you were in this meeting, but I was in a meeting and, it, and Nicole's there. I'm like, how dare you? How dare you ask for my, like, look us up, look us up and you'll see our qualifications, right? What are your qualifications that, that you are not going to, Kai Cameron is trying to do some great work. She's trying to improve PPSD, which we have in this discussion agreed, uh, is, is a fallacy and argument to begin with, right? Like that structure has to go. It has to be an entirely new beast if we want to actually see improvements. And uh, one of the things that she's looking for is 70% people of color, I was telling Peter offline, uh, to be teachers this year. And obviously, obviously it's not a realistic thing that it's, it's obvious. So, so let's forget about the fact that uh, it's not during the rainbow. It, it's not something that could happen if we wanted it to happen right now. But let's say 
let's say we had an influx of, of qualified candidates, uh, people of color who we can put in the classroom right now. My point back is that PPSD, like we'd be doing such a disservice to the people of color that we're putting in there because that environment is so hostile and toxic. I think of OSHA, uh, OSHA Williams, one of the most amazing teachers that we've ever had over at PPSD, chased out by uh, Judy D'Antuano, their assistant principal, uh, among other things, among just the systemic problems to begin with. It's not just about the recruitment, it's the retention. Oh. And like looking at, I mean, still like last in first out. And what's the work environment? Yeah. So, so if we were all in a meeting to this point, uh, four years ago, you were there, Robert, and we were talking to the former mayor and talking about teachers of color because all the youth and the families had come together around that demand. Okay. And we're all around a big table. I don't know if you remember the room, big donut over at the One Empire, I think. And we all said, this is non-negotiable. The community wants to see their identities reflected in the teaching workforce. And the mayor and his staff correctly said, well, you know, that takes time. You know, that we're not going to see that overnight. If we, like, do a little bit each year, it would take 20 years to build up. And I was like, I got your 20 years. I was at Ride 20 years ago. Right. If we had started that year and done 5% a year, we would be done. I could retire a happy moment, go off, live somewhere, and relax, knowing Providence Public Schools are in good hands. But we didn't. We never start. We talk about, well, it's going to be a big change. You know, it's a lot of work. Well, if we had started 20 years ago and chipped away at that 5% a year, that's 100% in 20 years. Hey. So, you know, QED, we should be doing this right now. Um, there's a lot of reasons not to do something. There's only one reason to do it, because it's the right thing to do. Right. I don't, I was, I had other topics. Uh, I think I need to save those topics. I think we need to end on it's the right thing to do. And I think we've agreed on so many points that we had a lot of common points. I think the foundation of the school departments that we're working with right now are not in a reparable state, I think is one of the things that we agreed on. Uh, doing things because it's the right thing to do. Uh, doing things because it's our mission and putting our students forward and leading with them in the community um, I have, you know, I have counterpoints to that because I found, uh, that my students in charter schools, uh, want out of the charter schools that they're in mm. and like want to transfer to some of the other schools. And meanwhile, students in the places that I talked about where they're called the N word and they know it and they say it and say, this is a problem. They have the highest, uh, morale for their school, not morale. What's the word? Um, loyalty. They have the highest loyalty, like an Alvarez high school student loves Alvarez High School. And uh, students at some of the charter schools that I work with, some ha can have major improvements and some are doing pretty good. Uh, those students are lining up to get out. The parents are lining up to get in, but the students are like, let me out of here. Um, it's interesting, right? It's interesting if they're leading our organizations and it's like, well, hold up, can we, let's make a decision on which way we wanna go. Uh, those things are really interesting. Uh, in the future, I'd love to have conversations about uh, that toxicity in Providence. I think that's where we were actually getting to. Um, and I actually wanted to, and I'm hoping to in the future have a conversation about decolonizing funders. I have, I, I will just make one example uh, before we give our final thoughts. My one example would be um, Rhode Island Foundation when I apply for money from Rhode Island Foundation. And I've said this to Rhode Island Foundation, just like I've had conversations with POC this year and a couple of others. 
Uh, Rhode Island Foundation says, um, how many people of color are on your board? It's not a problem for us, right? Our board is almost entirely POCs. Um, how many P POCs are like on your staff and all this? Those things are not problems for us. But my problem is when the top of your organization is an amazing black woman from the community, and then you have only one position above that person and that person applies and they're not even considered. You bring somebody in who didn't even apply. I'm talking about Rhode Island Foundation. Right? I'm talking about bringing in Cicilline. Um, like, what does that really say? Right? Like, it's it's weird. It's lip service. Um, I really struggle when I look at POC Foundation and I look at what they say they're doing versus some of the things that they are doing and some of the people that are representing the organization, Rhode Island Foundation, United Way. And I love a lot of the people in United Way. I mean, I genuinely mean that. Like, there's some great people there. Um, but, I, you know, these conversations, when I push back on what's a small organization, well, nothing kind of happens, right? They're going to celebrate 401 Gives next April. Um, these are conversations that I want to have with you guys in the future. I'm going to open up the floor as you tell us where we can follow your work, where we can follow Youth in Action, et cetera. But if you had any comments on any of that, Please, uh, now is the time. Peter, do you want to start? I've seen, I'm seeing energy this way. No, no I, I, when you said follow our work, I'm just like, de facto, like, you know, as nonprofits, we don't have that, that, that strategy, like, follow our work. Like, oh, come, come see us, 204 West Business. I'm sorry, you don't have, you don't have the number one podcast in education in the world. Uh, you know, uh, no, I, like I said, you know, we're, we're down here. Social media? Yeah, just IG, Young Voices, all right. Uh, I, I'd say that's where most of the action is. Uh, but also for our school's Providence, uh, OSPVD, uh, they're, they're on, um, you know, they're, they're on social media as well. Uh, and then shout out to the uh, New England Youth Organizing Network, NEON, uh, all of them on IG as well. I'm going to add a leadership journey, which you did earlier uh, when we talk about Akeem, but uh, you also mentioned uh, Joe. Randos, yeah. Movement Education Outdoors, follow them. As I, as I look them up and find out what their handle are, you can find any Youth in Action stuff by looking up the handle youthinactionri.org. And that includes our website, uh, all the socials, all the things. All their stuff is youth-led, so they're out here putting their wildest stuff on there, and I love them for it. Um, and while you're looking, I'll just say centerforjustice.org. When I took this job, my mom, who's shout out to my mom, 101 this year, said to me, that's a good name. Your mom is still with us at 101? Well, you bet. Living independently, all full of piss and vinegar like she always has been. Um, but she said, wow, you you get to work someplace called the Center for Justice? Is that a joke? Like, yeah. that's, a, that's a great name. And yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm proud to be there. And it is a great name. It sounds like Superman and Batman should be meeting there. Yeah. Justice yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and it, it's very literal. And uh, you can find Movement Education Outdoors at Movement Education Outdoors on social media, on Instagram. You guys, not just the people that we talked to today. Um, and, and so we talked a lot about YSO work, but I also want to say Jennifer has uh, just my highest level of respect because she's also been a fierce advocate for the entire community period, right? Like if, if stuff needs getting done, um, I never had to call Jennifer because somebody else in the community already has. Um, usually Shonda. Uh, <laughs> usually Shonda. Because she knows how to tell us all what to do. I go to, I go to family dinner and I'm hearing your name there too. It's, it's everywhere. So uh, Jennifer's doing great work in Rhode Island. You heard about Young Voices. You heard about Youth in Action. 
and then people who aren't in the room today, like Shonda with Arise and um, Pilar with A Sweet Creation. And as always, please check out Steambox at Steambox RI. Thank you for following the Steambox Versus podcast. Uh, Steambox homies, please say peace out to the world. Later.